Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. Not far from the middle of the western border of Alabama lies Hale County. It's situated in a part of Alabama known as the Black Belt which is a region of Alabama that runs east to west across the state, where historically plantation farming, using enslaved people, was extremely common. In fact, at one point in history, this area contained more than half of all the enslaved people in the United States. Unsurprisingly, then, Hale County was named for a slaver and officer in the Confederate Army, Stephen Fowler Hale. Alabama is a state with strong associations with slavery, the Civil War, the Confederacy, and iconic notions of the U.S. South, both its natural beauty and its brutal racist history, which came to be known as Dixie. Stephen Fowler Hale, namesake of Hale County, as you might guess, was no minor figure in the Confederate system. We don't name counties after folks for no reason. He served as deputy from Alabama to the Provisional Congress of the Confederate States from 1861 to 1862, the year in which he died of wounds received at the Battle of Gaines Farm in Virginia. The Provisional Congress was exactly what it sounds like, the provisional government of the Confederate States during the Civil War era. It was initially located in Montgomery, Alabama, but later moved to Richmond, Virginia. Hale himself led a life of privilege. He was born in Kentucky to a Baptist minister and was privately educated. He eventually attended Cumberland University, where he graduated, and then moved to Alabama, where he taught school and eventually earned a law degree. By 1860, at the age of only 44, he held $8,000 in real estate and $47,000 in other property, including a dozen enslaved people ranging in age from infancy to 59. Back in the day, this was considered substantial holdings. Early in his career, he'd been elected by voters in the state of Alabama to their state legislature in the early 1840s. He began serving in the military just a few years later in the Mexican War. In 1860, Hale, who had served in various official capacities with the state and was then serving as Alabama's commissioner to the state of Kentucky, sent a letter to the governor of Kentucky to explain Alabama's reasons for supporting secession. He expressed support for the Dred Scott SCOTUS ruling that reinforced slavery. What follows is a portion of his letter, which I warn is about as racist as you might expect, if not potentially more so. Quote, In the South, where in many places the African race largely predominates and, as a consequence, the two races would be continually pressing together, amalgamation or the extermination of the one or the other would be inevitable. Can Southern men submit to such degradation and ruin? God forbid that they should. The election of Mr. Lincoln cannot be regarded otherwise than a solemn declaration on the part of a great majority of the northern people of hostility to the South, her property and her institutions. Nothing less than an open declaration of war, for the triumph of this new theory of government destroys the property of the South, lays waste her fields, 
and inaugurates all the horrors of a San Domingo servile insurrection, consigning her citizens to assassinations and her wives and daughters to pollution and violation to gratify the lust of half-civilized Africans. End quote. Stephen F. Hale, Letter to the Governor of Kentucky, December 1860. I don't want to spend any more time on Hale. He isn't what this episode is about. But I do want to paint a picture of the area of the U.S. we're looking at. The context, the history, the type of men they believed are worthy of accolades. And Stephen Fowler Hale, the state thought, should have a county named after him. So let's have a look at the county that bears his name. It's not large. The entire population, according to the 2020 census, was less than 15,000 people. It was established shortly after the American Civil War was lost in early 1867. Since the Civil War, white people in the county have controlled most of the economic and political power in the county. Like a lot of the U.S. South, this type of control was perpetuated through violence, policies intended to disenfranchise black voters, and heavy support for Jim Crow laws. In 1865, Frederick Douglass said that, quote, Slavery was not abolished until the black man has the ballot, unquote. You'd think that asking, when did black people in the U.S. get the right to vote, would yield a simple answer, like a year that this happened. But it's not that simple. The black community in the U.S. has a complicated history with civil rights, and especially voting rights. It's not so cut and dry because there's a divide between laws that are passed, what is intended with those laws, what those laws actually accomplish, and how big the loopholes are. Much like reproductive rights for folks facing a pregnancy, you can have a right to choice, but you can still be denied the capacity to exercise it. And a right that cannot be exercised is no right at all. It reminds me of the episode on free speech where Moskowitz said that free speech is nothing more than a propaganda phrase. There's only speech. Who has it and who does not? Likewise, the codified right to vote is only as relevant as a person's ability to exercise it. There is no right to vote. There is only voting. Who can do it and who can't? So we can look at the laws and when we codified particular rights like voting, but that doesn't tell the story if we fail to also look at the capacity to vote. Only looking at the codes tells us a half-truth, which is no truth at all. The 14th Amendment, just a few years later, granted citizenship to anyone born or naturalized in the U.S., including former enslaved people and it claimed to guarantee equal protection of the laws. In the next decade, the 15th Amendment was passed, which attempted to guarantee voting rights specifically. Although it outlawed race-based discrimination, it left the door open for other forms of discrimination, which correlated to the black citizens and communities. Literacy tests and poll taxes made sure anyone denied access to education or financial wealth could also be denied access to voting rights. So after the Black Codes fell, these new laws, known as Jim Crow laws, 
replaced them in a further attempt to subvert the spirit of the amendments intended to expand voting rights to black men specifically. And these Jim Crow laws, paired with social violence that was often perpetuated by local law enforcement and other community leaders on behalf of white supremacy and black disenfranchisement, made the constitutional right to vote irrelevant. It wasn't that no black person could cast a ballot. It was that a whole lot of black citizens could not qualify, and even if they did, they still had to confront threats of violence to exercise that right. Violence was perpetuated as well on protesters who voiced the need for real equity and justice under the laws and at the ballot box. Iconic images of marchers being brutally assaulted have become part of the national memory, and may we never forget. In fact, the Safe House Museum in Greensboro, one of the cities within Hale County, is set on the site where the owner of the structure sheltered Martin Luther King Jr. from Klan members. But it wasn't until almost a hundred years later in 1966 when SCOTUS finally found that Jim Crow-styled laws were just thinly-veiled dog whistles to say that black citizens would not vote in our southern states and in counties just like Hale. To put this in scale, before the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, only about 23% of eligible black voters were registered nationwide. After the act was passed, that number rose to 61%. By the 1980s, Southern voter rolls showed the percentage of adult black voters surpassed those of the rest of the country. In 2012, for the first time in U.S. history, turnout of black voters exceeded that of white voters by percentage of their demographic population. However, the following year, 2013, the U.S. response to the prior year's black voter success was to use the courts to gut certain parts of the Voting Rights Act to allow states to enact discriminatory election laws bypassing federal approval that had been required under the act. As soon as the act fell, states began passing new voter restrictions limiting early voting and requiring voter ID. Again, a thinly veiled dog whistle was used somehow reducing the number of polling places, polling hours, and early voting access was supposed to magically reduce fraud. Levels of fraud that were claimed, but never demonstrated, in spite of repeated attempts to prove it. So in 2012, it seemed that we'd made great strides in voting equity for the black community, but in 2013, we saw that success still hung by a thread and white supremacy and racism in the U.S. was still very much alive and well, like the crocodile that lies in wait under the tightrope walker, mouth wide open, patiently hoping for a fall. And when SCOTUS gutted those aspects of the Voting Rights Act, the tightrope walker tumbled, and it was dinner time for the croc. Racism, it turned out, was alive and well, and the only thing protecting black votes was the act that made it difficult to implement racist voting restrictions, not some fundamental shift in the national ethos toward anti-racist thinking. It's also worthwhile to note here some of what's currently happening in Alabama at the state level as I script this episode. On Capitol Hill, Alabama has two state senators and seven congresspeople. The two senators are Republicans, 
as are six of their seven congressional representatives. All are white, with the exception of the single Democratic congresswoman, Terry Sewell, who is a black woman. Recently, SCOTUS reviewed gerrymandered district maps, which impacts their seven House representatives. And in June of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a three-judge panel's ruling that the state map currently, with only a single-majority black district out of seven, in a state that is nearly 30% black, was not in compliance with the Voting Rights Act, at least not the parts that our U.S. Supreme Court still cares about. Still, the state is refusing to carve out a second-majority black district. Alabama has been and still is, a racist state that flaunts how much it values white supremacy. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little here. In the first half of the 1900s, a lot of black citizens were migrating out of Hale County on their way to northern and western city centers in search of more opportunities in areas of the country that, at the very least, didn't view Confederate icons as heroic. Still, it wasn't until 1997 that Greensboro, a city in Hale County, elected its first black mayor, John E. Owens Jr. And in the first decade of the 2000s, they also saw a black sheriff and a black chief of police. It's fair to say that in Hale County, black integration into the power structure wasn't impossible but it also wasn't something it was rushing into from the Civil War to the present. Economic growth in Hale County has been a mixed bag, with some parts of the county faring a lot better than others, and about 30% of the residents currently live in poverty. Compare this to the U.S. as a whole, where 11.6% of people are living in poverty. Not anything to celebrate, but still better than 30%. In addition to the city of Greensboro, the county also consists of three very small towns, Akron, Moundville, and New Bern. Of these three, New Bern is the smallest, with only 133 people counted during the 2020 census. Additionally, the entire town is only 1.2 square miles. That's 3.1 square kilometers for most of the rest of the world. Hale County, as of 2020, was a majority black county. In fact, it was 56% black compared to only 40% white. The remaining residents are Native American, Asian Pacific Islander, Hispanic, or Latino, and almost 2% of residents listed themselves as other or mixed. The tiny 133-person town of Newburn has an even greater black majority. It's 63% black and only 31% white, and the remaining residents are split between Hispanic or Latino and the mixed category. The town was actually incorporated before Hale County. It was established in 1854. It's home to the Rural Studio, which is a design-build architectural studio run by Auburn University. Its mission is to teach students about social responsibility as it relates to architecture. The studio has built more than 80 houses and civic projects in the surrounding area to service poor communities. 
But it should be noted that the studio has been the target of criticism for its focus on aspiring to mainstream middle-class values and financial donors, as opposed to political emancipation and self-determination as a way to improve lives. The median annual income for a household in New Bern is $20,000, and some change. And for families, that figure increases to just over 31000 The 2000 census, which was the last records I could find, showed a binary breakdown with men and women where men were earning a median income of just over 25000 compared to women who were earning just under 12000 It's just not an area with a very high concentration of wealth, to put it mildly. And for context... At the Newburn Wiki page, they boast four notable people. A baseball player, an NFL player, an NBA player, and Henry Watson Jr., whose claim to fame listed at the site is literally, quote, owned a cotton plantation in Newburn, unquote. Me being who I am, I had to know. He was incredibly privileged. Born in Connecticut, where he graduated from Trinity College in Hartford. He then attended Harvard, where he studied under Professor John Collins Warren, who taught, I kid you not, scientific racism. This apparently fed into his white supremacist views, and he ultimately moved to Greensboro, where he purchased a 1,500-acre plantation that utilized approximately 200 enslaved people. This made him one of the largest slavers in Alabama during his day. Not only was he an outspoken supporter of slavery, but he founded something called the Planters Insurance Company and served as its president. The company insured crops and property. I wasn't able to find out either way if it issued insurance for loss of enslaved labor, but there were actually insurance policies available for insuring enslaved labor during this part of our national history. He traveled and he lived the life of Riley, basically spending the money he exploited from the people he enslaved. When chattel slavery moved into penal slavery, he decided that he'd rather convert his land to exploitative sharecropping, rather than pay his workers a decent and fair wage. And why are we talking about this man again? Oh yeah, noteworthy people from New Bern. Three professional sports players, and this guy. Keep this in mind, keep all of this in mind, the history and the present, as we start to head into the whole reason I'm talking about any of this. In 2020, a New Bern resident, Patrick Braxton, a volunteer firefighter and emergency responder, didn't like what he was seeing in his local government. Majority Black Newburn had always had a white mayor and a white city council, with the exception of one black council member who served at one point in the past. Braxton was becoming even more concerned as he observed how the needs of Newburn's black residents were not being met during the COVID pandemic. He decided that he wanted to do something about it, and his plan was to run for office and become Newburn's first black mayor. Newburn actually had not had an election for decades. And apparently, the office of mayor was inherited in a strange process where the job was passed down to hand-picked successors 
similar to what we might expect from an emperor. The mayor would also choose their own town council members, so no elections were ever being held. He wasn't even completely sure how to run, what was required. So he approached the town's current mayor, Haywood Stokes III, to ask about the process. The actual process wasn't that hard. It required simply turning in a statement of candidacy and a qualifying money order. Braxton did this and handed his materials over to the then-city clerk, Lynn Williams. However, the initial information given to him by Stokes, Braxton said was not correct. Stokes set Braxton off on the wrong path, and Braxton had to sort it out for himself and get it squared away, which he was eventually able to do. Additionally, there was no public notice issued to the community for an upcoming election. It turned out Braxton ended up being the only person who correctly filed as a candidate, which made him the only person eligible to be Newburn's new mayor. No other residents had attempted to run, and the incumbent, Stokes, didn't even bother to complete the necessary paperwork, even though he was aware that Braxton also intended to run. All of the existing council members also failed to file, and Judge Arthur Crawford gave Braxton a green light to appoint his own council members, since he'd won the race by default being the only eligible candidate who had entered. This was how prior mayoral administrations had also done it. Braxton asked both black and white citizens to serve with him, but no white residents agreed to join his council. In the end, Braxton became the first black mayor of New Bern since the town's founding 165 years ago. All of this seems mundane from a clerical standpoint, if not a little bit too suspiciously easy from a practical one. It turns out that Stokes and the council didn't bother filing or running because they had other plans. They claim they adopted a special election ordinance between themselves. There was no public notice of the meeting where this happened, and no one was aware of it. Not the townspeople, not Braxton, and apparently not Judge Crawford. But the mayor and the council members gathered in secret on October 6, 2020, and basically re-elected themselves. Then, the next month in November, they swore themselves in, completely disregarding Braxton's appointed town council. Braxton, along with his chosen town council members, has now filed a civil rights lawsuit alleging that the city council members, Gary Broussard, Jesse Donald Leverett, Von Seal Brown Thomas, and Willie Richard Tucker, as well as the incumbent mayor, Haywood Stokes III, conspired to hold an illegal election to re-elect Stokes and keep Braxton out of office. The lawsuit states that Stokes and his town council filed their oaths of office with the probate judge and that Braxton was never informed. It also states that the incumbent mayor and council members were motivated by their unwillingness to accept a black mayor and council. CBS News reviewed the filings and published that Stokes and his council acknowledge Braxton as the, quote, former mayor of New Bern. They admit he was the only person to qualify for mayor and that no one else qualified for either mayor or council seats. 
They acknowledged the secret special election was intended to reappoint themselves to their former positions. But they also assert that Stokes became mayor of Newburn again after Braxton, quote, lost the position by operation of law, unquote. And I'm not entirely sure how they figure this, if I'm honest. And it's infuriating that the courts have to sort this out when it's so clearly unethical. I'm not sure how they could have the power to undo his position of mayor if they actually acknowledge he did in fact become mayor. But this is definitely one to watch. Even the CBS article comments on that explanation by themselves saying, quote, it's not clear by what operation of law Braxton would have lost the position, unquote. And just when you thought this could not possibly get any weirder, the town council and the incumbent mayor changed the locks on the council building in order to bar Braxton and his council members from being able to enter. When Braxton was finally able to access the building in January 2021, he realized that someone had removed official town documents from the building. Braxton then changed the locks again to maintain access. The lawsuit alleges that Stokes and his crew then returned to change the locks a further time and that access for Braxton and his council has not been easy or uninterrupted since April 2021. Other information that Braxton was barred from included financial information withheld by the People's Bank of Greensboro, and the bank is named as a defendant in the lawsuit along with the postmaster, Lynn Thebe, who became the new postmaster in 2021 and blocked Braxton from accessing the town's official post office box. Braxton's lawsuit alleges Thebe is acting in a coordinated effort with Team Stokes. Some of the town documents that have been moved, presumably to keep them from Braxton, are now in the hands of the city clerk, who is a relative of Stokes. The allegation in the suit is that the city clerk has been instructed not to communicate or help Braxton in accessing the documents. Braxton points to this in his suit as evidence of conspiracy to keep him from acting as the Newburn mayor. Additionally, Team Stokes has not held any public meetings at the town hall since 2020, but they're still holding meetings using private homes. In the suit, Braxton asked the court to make the defendants cease from interfering in his ability to do his job as mayor, that they provide him with access to all of the documents, accounts, and property that they are currently withholding, and that Team Stokes be stopped from conducting business on behalf of the town as though Braxton and his council are not legitimately empowered as the city officials who are empowered to handle Newburn's business. Stokes and the council members do not deny they did most of these things. Their defense is that this was within their rights and that nothing they did reaches a level of a violation of a constitutional right. They maintain everything they have done has been within the bounds of the law, and through their attorneys they have responded with a motion to entirely dismiss the federal lawsuit. If we were looking at this case in a vacuum, 
it would be easy to write off the behavior of Stokes and his council members as a power grab. We know from history that desire for power alone can be sufficient to explain unethical, immoral, or even outright illegal behavior. We don't need to add racism to explain it. But the truth is, this situation hasn't unfolded in a vacuum. It unfolded in a nation predicated on brutal white supremacy in a state that has demonstrated its loyalty to that same ideology of white supremacy, willing to go to war and to kill and die to maintain systems of race-based chattel slavery and oppression. Honoring the memories of those whose wealth, power, and legacy were built on the blood-stained backs of exploited labor, creating black codes to maintain the form of the slave system as penal slavery after chattel slavery was outlawed, creating Jim Crow laws to make sure black citizens were denied so much as a vote when the laws were revised to guarantee those votes, using violence and voter restrictions including local law enforcers to strip away guaranteed rights, a state that has fought in court to restrict black voting rights using gerrymandering to deny more than a quarter of their population representation because they are black. Alabama has joined the effort to undermine the Voting Rights Act and even now appears to be willing to defy the Supreme Court with its district maps. On a more local level, Hale County, still named for Confederate government official and military man whose claim to fame was that he owned a slave plantation, Hale County, located in the historic Black Belt, which continues to represent black disenfranchisement in the form of community poverty, where white control dominates in the seats of local power despite majority black populations. Hale County, where white-centric solutions are offered to black community concerns. Hale County, the site of a structure where Martin Luther King Jr. was held in a safe house to protect him from the KKK. And the tiny town of Newburn, where all of this is still reflected. When we're looking at a context that isn't saturated in racism, it might make sense to start with an assumption that race and racism isn't playing a role in a power struggle. But we are in a context saturated in racism. We are in a context where we have a clear line through history right into the modern age that shows that Newburn exists as a racist town in a racist county in a spectacularly racist state in a nation that was founded on white supremacist ideology. The starting assumption in this context should be that racism is a given in political power struggles unless it can be demonstrated to not be playing a hand in what's happening here. In this context, racism is the norm. A lack of racism is the exception, not the rule through time and policy from start to finish. I don't think, though, that our courts will see it this way. I hope I'm wrong, but white supremacy is kind of like fight club. Part of how it's maintained and perpetuated is that we need to deny it and not see it. The first rule of modern white supremacy is that 
Nobody talks about white supremacy. And even though it's everywhere and soaking into everything, we start with an assumption that it's not in play and that it's on the oppressed and racialized communities to prove that explicit racism has been involved. The saddest part of this whole story is that I can't be sure that what is right is what will prevail. I hope it will, but I wish I could be confident. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.